guys from my nature background <laughs> and your beautifully built office that has personal clarity. That, that's going to end up coming down in the near No, Probably. why? Okay, fine, but you can recreate that. I will. It'll yeah. come with me. <clears throat> You'll just break it down and recreate it somewhere else. Maybe. We'll, we'll see where I end up. If I end up in a place like Montana, I might be... Oh, I'm coming. I might be able to create something different. That's but... on my bucket list. I'm going to come there to go fly fishing. But it's so funny. I've been looking at houses out there and just seeing what I can get, see what's available in Idaho yeah. and Montana, Wyoming. And when you hop on these different realtor websites, there's really just not that much available at a relatively decent price point. And it's, it becomes really frustrating because you're like, man, am I going to be stuck in Illinois forever? No, I feel like in general, there's a lack of realty available in general, like all over for yeah. some reason. Even looking at rentals. So- <clears throat> was looking at rentals out there to say, okay, what if I take six months and mm -hmm. just go to Montana, even just see if it's something that, that I want to live in for an extended period of time. Haven't been able to find a decent enough rental. It's all extremely high end, which is expected. Yeah. Um, you know, cause you're looking in Bozeman and Billings and oh, Bozeman is gorgeous. Yeah, I know. I could totally see you in Bozeman. So can I. I can totally see <laughs> you in Bozeman. I'm pretty sure my German Shepherd would love it too. Ah, uh, totally. What if you did a little bit of like Airbnbs and then worked with a realtor over there to just discover? Because once you go there, there's more available than what you're seeing online. Just because I know oh, a lot sure. of I know yeah. a lot of people that live there, a lot of clients and people that go to school there, and there's more available properties when you go in person. So I'd get like an Airbnb and just really ex have an opportunity to explore with a realtor. And then I'll, and then you set up a, the station over there and then I'll come over there and we'll do a, a in-person podcast yeah. and I can fly fish. And when I can cross off that off my bucket list. There you go. Funny. Yeah. You just look at the backdrop of something like that and you look it's at stunning. The, you look at the type of videos that I create and how great would it be to do the take a walk with me videos and the backdrop is just totally majestic. It's amazing. It's beautiful. I think it's not that Illinois hasn't been great. We get no. re really good sunsets where I'm at because mm -hmm. um, there's not a lot down here. But there's Mount. So I'm a big mountain yeah. girl. I, there is something about mountain energy that is like very calming to the nervous system. And the, I think it's the oxygen. I don't know where that word came from. Oxygen and the altitude is, I think it's oxygen essentially that creates a more regulated nervous system in nature. And I find that every time I go somewhere that's mountainous, I sleep like a baby. And I'm like, there has to be a correlation between this. And I started looking it up and it's altitude and it's oxygen that's produced from the mountains. And obviously you're in awe of mother nature, right? You're looking at what mother nature created and how perfectly mother nature. And it's not just that. So how often, and I want everybody who's listening right now, we'll do our introductions here in a minute, but how often do you actually lift up your head in your daily life? You find yourself focusing on your feet, focusing on the floor, focusing on just a few feet ahead of you, driving maybe one car ahead of you, but you're not actually looking out 
at that horizon line. And so yes. when you do that, you're allowing that horizon line to, to meet you where you are. And all of a sudden you see this panoramic view of something that you really haven't been paying attention to, but has been there this entire time. And it does have this massive calming effect on you, on your body, on yeah. the situation that you're in right now. You just, you take that deep breath in and you let it go. And all of a sudden it's like, same thing with being on the beach, right? You walk yeah. up, walk out onto the sand, walk into the water mm -hmm. and you feel that cold water come right over the top of your feet. And you're just like, yes. You are talking polyvagal and it's basically. So before we get into that. Yeah. Welcome to the Blueprint Podcast Live. Tell us who you are and who you help. So I'm Essen Panarli. I am a licensed clinical social worker, mastered certified addiction professional. I'm a trauma specialist that specializes in brain spotting, which is natural flow EMDR, as well as I work a lot with couples and families from an emotional focus therapy meets imago perspective, which are basically modalities that are evidence-based that help foster and create more intimacy and reorganize family systems in terms of what's working and what's not working within the constructs of a system. Everything's a system, right? A family is a system, a relationship is a system friendships or systems. And so imago and emotional focused therapy really gets into the pain points of what's really getting activated in all the family members or all the cast of characters that are involved in these, sometimes people call it dysfunctional. I just think that the family system is not operating at the best efficiency. That's all. And that there are ways to teach people how to operate that system in a more effective, organizational, dialogical way. That's a little bit about what I do. And I have a pretty much a holistic psychotherapist. I have a, a company that I opened up, Eternal Wellness Counseling. I'm in Florida, but I also have a coaching company, which is Eternal Wellness Coaching, so that I could reach a larger audience and be able to offer those modalities and help people illuminate the path to their own healing and walk alongside them. And along with all of that, I'm also proud to call you a friend. And you and I talk often, and it's really great to see just how dedicated you are to your craft, to putting in the effort, to learning new and different things. Even most recently, you put yourself through a polyvagal theory training. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping that you could dive into a little bit about that and explain to us what that is and what the implications are for us. Absolutely. And I'm also honored to call you a friend. And I think both of us, we, we talked early on about, and this was just such an organic friendship that developed between the two of us. And I value it immensely. And there's it just happened organically and that's the beauty of it. And I really appreciate you saying that you noticed my dedication because I feel <clears throat> that I'm always going to be a student and I always want to learn yeah. because the more I know sometimes I'm like, the more there is to know. And I feel like sometimes people are so different, right? We all have different stories. We all have different pain points. We all have different things that activate us. And I think the important point with that is, is the more I'm trained, the more I learn, and I'm a nerd, I love learning, the more tools and the more I have to offer a diverse 
population of people that share different struggles. And so this Polyvigal, that training that I did, I've been a really huge fan. Stephen Porges is the founder of Polyvigal Theory. And Deb Dana, who is the author of Anchored, which is a book I recommend for everybody to read. It's absolutely wonderful. It's about befriending your nervous system. And the idea that we talk about with polyvagal theory is that it's about safety in your nervous system. And it's about how to self-soothe and how to recognize the hierarchy of your autonomic nervous system that we all have. And Stephen Porges coined the term neuroception. And what neuroception, we've heard it, it's in a lot of books, is this automatic sort of internal awareness. It's like this antenna that's out where you're constantly scanning for threats of safety. And that's emotional and physical safety to your body in terms of people that you meet, places that you go to. And our neuroception affects what we deem as safe and not safe to our nervous system. So it doesn't know the difference between if you're being chased by a tiger because we have a very primal mammalian brain and we're supposed to have this fight, flight, or flee. We need it to survive. But oftentimes if we have earlier traumas and we have earlier experiences that have caused our nervous system to become dysregulated, then what ends up happening is some of that safety is taken away from us inside of our own bodies. And then we perceive things through that filter and everything that comes to us or everyone that we connect with, is it safe or not safe? And our body does that in a split second because it's scanning. And so Stephen Poor just coined that term, which is neuroception, which you're automatically scanning the environment all the time. And instead of and looking at it that it is your body's beautiful, brilliant mechanism and that the body doesn't know the actual implications of real threat where you're being chased by a tiger, where you should fight or flee. You should probably flee. You probably shouldn't fight. Or emotional threat or physical threat. It feels the same exact way as if you're being chased by a tiger. It's that level of fear that gets activated. And so polyvagal theory, besides neuroception, is all about co-regulation. And co-regulation is basically somebody's nervous system relaxes your nervous system in their presence. It can be an animal. It can be any kind of a pet. Or you feel safe in their presence, meaning that we are constantly sending off signals and cues to one another without recognizing it about what is safe and what isn't safe. So certain people, you're like, why do I feel safe with this person? And I don't feel safe with this other person. Or because it's reminding you of something where you weren't safe before. Maybe it's their tone of voice. Maybe it's their, and I call, and that's a big part of polyvagal theory, intonation of your voice. And so if a voice reminds you of somebody who harmed you or you experienced a level of lack of safety, that automatically triggers a, a lack of safety cue in your body. And so that's now we move into interoception which is basically being aware of your inner physiological state. What's going on inside of me? 
How do I feel inside of me? What's my heart rate variability? Is my heart rate high? Is my stomach, is that, do I have a pit in my stomach? Is my pulse going up? That's basically becoming aware of your internal world. And so one of the great things in this last training that I took in polyvagal theory was they talked about Descartes. And Descartes is the one who says, I think, therefore I am. And if Descartes was polyvagal informed, it would be, I feel, therefore I am. And so it's shifting this concept around instead of thinking our way out of discomfort, activation, we feel our way out of it. We get to use our nervous system and work with our nervous system and befriend our nervous system. And a lot of times that's difficult for people because they go, I want to be out of my body. I don't want to feel what's going on inside of my body. But that's the portal because if you could introduce calming, ventral, neural exercises into your body, and that's what we were originally talking about when you first began, walking, stopping and smelling the roses, basically taking in the visual stimuli, taking in the visual stimuli of mother nature, of the mountains, taking a walk in nature, all of that is co-regulating your nervous system. If it, because you are walking in nature and you are taking in visual stimuli. And then the idea of thinking about, and Deb Dana came up with the concept of glimmer, a glimmer, right? A moment, a moment, a glimmer, or some kind of experience that you have had where you felt safe, where you felt connected, where you felt anchored with a person, where you felt seen and heard and validated. It only needs to be a moment, a glimmer, or an actual experience. And remembering what that feels like and what, is that, what did that feel like in my body to feel seen and heard and validated and connected. That could be in nature. In the moment that I saw that panoramic view of that mountain and I really took in the visual stimuli, I felt in awe. I felt expansive. I felt calm. I felt soothed. And then bringing in that, bringing that in as often as you can, these moments, these experiences, it can be with a person, nature, an animal. You can also humming. And a lot of times in yoga, I don't know if you're a yogi, I'm a yogi. And in yoga, the, one of the big things is OM. Yeah, and the that's power of om. the power of OM. It's because it's vibrating in your throat. And so when you breathe, you're inhaling and you're vibrating a vocal exhale and it's vibrating in your throat and it's basically activating your vagus nerve. And your vagus nerve is what's responsible for keeping you calm. It's what creates a regulated nervous system. And so the vocal exhalation and the vibration in your throat is basically penetrating through your vagus nerve that connects your gut to your brain. And as we know, our second brain is our gut. 90 to 95% of our serotonin is made in our gut. That's why there's so much focus on gut health. 
And it's important because it's our second brain. And so we're toning the vagus nerve, which is creating more calm. And we are able to oscillate and move into different autonomic states inside of our body. And that we are, that's how powerful that we are. If I bring in this experience inside of my body, even though I'm activated, even though there has been, my neuroception detected a lack of safety, if I bring in that experience, I can oscillate my nervous system back into a little more ventral. I'm introducing more ventral into my nervous system. And that's automatically shifting me into that. And so we're always in a blended state. And what I mean by that is that because neuroception is always going on and interoception, becoming aware of our internal world, what are we feeling? Interoception is also the cues for thirst, hunger, all that inner physiology of what your body may need at any given moment and what your body is feeling at any given moment. Becoming more aware of that helps you to, oh, okay, be more compassionate and self-aware without judging it. Because if we judge something, we're going to get more of it. It's that idea of if you keep resisting this dysregulated nervous state and try to run away from it, it's going to keep giving it back to you. So instead of when you pause and there's that space between the external stimulus and your reaction, you have this moment where you can behave differently or you can introduce calm into your nervous system. And that's that experience. Or even let's say you and I connect right now on this podcast and we have this moment where we connect and I'm hearing you and you're hearing me. We can internalize that feeling inside of our body and that automatically gives us the ability to introduce moments of connection, glimmers of connection, whether that's with a person, a pet, nature. What did it feel like to be in that moment, to experience that? And you get, you know what it felt like. So you have, and, and it's then your job or it's helpful for you to be able to bring that in. And that helps you to be able to oscillate through these different nervous system states. And when I say blended, we're always going from sympathetic to parasympathetic. And so I'll break that down really quickly. I'm about to ask a question and you're just, yeah. like, you're hitting the points like right on. I, I love when you say that we're in that blended space because I think we have this misperception or misconception that, you know, I'm always supposed to be in this parasympathetic state, right? Mm -hmm. And you have moments of being in your parasympathetic, yes. right? That rest and relaxation. But you're not always going to live there. You're not going to stay there. And so that really shouldn't be a goal. The goal is to be able to navigate the sympathetic, right? When we're in that heightened state of arousal yes. and to use these tools that we give to ourselves, right? It's a mm -hmm. gift that we're giving to ourselves that allows us to then move into that parasympathetic state on things that used to highly activate us, right? Yeah. And, and, and then we're building resilience in that in-between state. Window of tolerance, I consider okay. it, and at window of tolerance and resilience, both of them. Because I was talking about this angular singular cortex in the back of your left eye, which is, again, part of neuroception, and it's constantly measuring pain threshold and emotional comfort and discomfort. And it, the, the more difficult things that we do, and the larger and more dense that part becomes. But we don't want to introduce too much too quickly because 
we want to introduce it at a 4% variable, little by little. And so what I what happens is that people are in sympathetic, we need to be in sympathetic, the goal is not like you said, to have this totally regulated nervous system, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that's not even being human. That sympathetic is also just being aware of your environment, the things that are happening around you, right? It allows you to be alert. It allows you to be alert and it allows you to, if an action is needed, it allows you to do that action. It allows you to take care of that task. We need sympathetic. We don't want to look at, it's not a bad thing. It's just about how can I oscillate between being in that state and then introduce And when we introduce more ventral, which is the stuff that I just discussed, then we exercise the vagal break, which means it it pauses this physiological, visceral reaction to this perceived threat of lack of safety. And that is signaling to your nervous system that this is a threat to me emotionally or physically. Somehow your body detected that whatever the situation is in a really in the context of a relationship when you don't get a text back when somebody is avoiding you it feels like a threat to your emotional safety and in that moment we always talk about self-soothing this is how you self-soothe you actually introduce it in that moment it feels difficult at first but the more you do it the more it becomes its habituation the more i do something the more i do difficult things the larger my window of tolerance becomes to do difficult things. But I don't go and operate on this really high level. And I look at it like this iceberg. You don't just thaw it. You start to chip away at it. So in order to build your resilience and your window of tolerance to be able to tolerate more uncomfortable things slowly over time is by introducing it little by little at a 4% variable is what I find the most effective. So you don't want to, you want to make this part denser, the singular cortex, but not in a way where you're overdoing it. You're in this hyper-focused, hyper-arousal, hypo and hyper-arousal is an uncomfortable state of being in sympathetic. But sympathetic, we need it to get things done. It can be very value-driven, very goal-oriented. And I was talking about it with you earlier. It's this idea of being on this bicycle. I use it as a bicycle metaphor. We're, we're constantly pedaling and pedaling. We're getting stuff done. We have a goal. We want to reach. And that's okay. It's value-driven, right? So there's a sense of purpose in it for us, or it's paying the bills, or it's necessary for us to do it. But I want to introduce the ability that you can step off the bike for a second. And that's when you introduce that moment of ventral into your system. That doesn't mean you stop working towards your goals. That doesn't mean you're not value-driven. It means, you know, that's when you can enter into parasympathetic, which is ventral. And it stands for rest and digest, but it's a lot more than that. It's, it's what allows you to have social engagement with people. It's what allows you to have intonation in your voice, which allows you to be more playful and spontaneous. Because if I'm in a state of fear and I don't, and I'm pedaling on the bike and I'm go do productivity oriented and I don't step off of the bike, then I don't, I'm not able to engage my social engagement system and I'm not as playful. I'm not as spontaneous. I don't have as much intonation in my voice. I am monotone because I'm just trying to get through what I'm getting through. And so introducing these glimmers and these inner anchors 
is what I call it. And that's that book that I talked about with Deb Dana, who is part of this polyvagal theory, is it's inner nurturers, but it's really anchors. And these anchors inside of our body that we can go to. Imagery is huge. Imagery, let's never underestimate the value of imagery. If I can imagine being in a place and what it felt like to be in that place, I can actually access ventral. And if I can introduce a moment of ventral while I'm on the bike, because I got off of the bike, when I get back on the bike, I'm going to be more efficient. I'm going to be, this creates more longevity and sustainability for whatever your goal is. I want to meet a partner. I want, and we're on that bike, like I got to meet somebody I'm dating. I want to become better at my craft and we're on that bike and we're whatever it is. I want to make more money. I want, you can have goals, you can be value driven, but if you don't get off of the bike and you're constantly pedaling, your body is going to shut down and go into dorsal. And that's that whole, that's that blended state. Dorsal is good and bad. The dorsal shutdown state that you enter when you live in that sympathetic go, go, do state is a complete shutdown where you no longer want connection. You're too burned out. You don't feel that you have a desire to interact. Your body is literally shutting itself down because it's been overstimulated. Because when you stay in sympathetic too long, your body starts producing rapid rates of cortisol and adrenaline. And then your body starts to become, there's literally a warning bell that goes on in your body. It goes danger and it literally depresses your organs to, to basically deactivate the influx of those hormones. Because if you stay in that state, you can get sick and it creates, and that's why a lot of times it, the mind and body connection is huge. It's because you can actually get sick from being in sympathetic too long. It can manifest as a physical illness. And that's why a lot of people get ulcers and it exacerbates chronic pain and they have ulceritis, colitis, all these things. Every time I work with somebody and I find out they have a physical ailment, I ask them, what was going on prior to you being diagnosed with that? And almost always- always, always a gut issue. There's always either a gut issue, a stressor, an external stressor that they stayed in too long. Basically, they were on the bike too long and they didn't step off. So interludes. Yeah, but if I step off, then everything falls apart. That's the fear, right? And what about this? What about this concept? What if it doesn't fall apart? What if you introduce to your nervous system that it will still all stay together if I step off of the bike? And who else is going to do it? But you're because you're going to get back on the bike. You're not getting off of the bike. You're just stepping off of the bike to introduce more calm into your nervous system because you're going to ride faster and longer on that bike with a more regulated nervous system. You're going to last longer. You're going to be more productive. And so there's a sense of urgency. And also, if you're so used to being on the bike, it feels really uncomfortable to step off of the bike. Because it feels, I'm not going to be able to get back on. I'm going to lose momentum. It's fear in two directions. And I, that, I, that's really difficult to navigate. The, the fear that if I stop what I'm doing, then I'm never going to get back what's happening. And then when I do stop, that fear of I'm never going to get started again. And I call that bi-directional fear, right? So it's like this, 
I have this thought in my head. It's just a thought. We have about 60,000 thoughts a day and there's all these different studies on it. Some of them we remember, some of them we don't. And about 60 to 70% of those 60,000 thoughts are repetitive. And a lot of them are negative. This is just being human. This and, is just and that's being... what we mean when we tell people that you're living in the past because you're literally waking up each day and you're starting with where you were yesterday, the day before, the week before. It's the same train of thought. Yes. So we need to do pattern interruption, right? Yeah. We need to, and this is what this is. This is pattern interruption. This is, I'm going to have all of these automatic negative thoughts. I call them ants, you know, and if I feed these ants, they're going to grow a colony. If I starve them, by introducing ventral and moments of calm, glimmers of calm, glimmers of ventral, by internalizing experiences inside, feeling that, by humming, even like somatic shaking, literally like shaking your body and just that actually induces something ventral. That's why movement is so important. Yeah, because just, just make sure you have enough space in your general area if you're going to be doing the shaking. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. I, I I don't. I'm sitting in a chair, but I've it seen can some be... shaking incidences online, and it's come on, guys. <laughs> and not overdoing it, but yeah. just shaking it, and just one of the one of the exercises. It's a neural exercise. Is to open your arms and close your arms while you're walking side to side. Open your arms and close your arms, and you're basically focusing on just moving side to side, stepping out, stepping back in, stepping out with your arms, stepping back in. And this is pattern interruption. You're actually interrupting the inner monologue. You're interrupting whatever's going on in your nervous system and you're pausing and you're interrupting and you're doing an, a movement, right? And that's why working out shapes your physio inner physiology and they call it psychophysiology in polyvagal and the psychophysiology is that th these internal states, these different internal states that we can introduce all of these body principles that use imagery, chanting, that vibration in your throat, humming, and intonation of your voice. So if you play with the voice, like if you do use like lower pitch tones, it creates a little bit more calm. So if you're talking a little bit lower and slower and in the intonation is lower, it introduces a different feeling inside of your body. And especially if somebody's across from you and you're co-regulating with them, that's not the only thing that makes you co-regulate. Safety. You Does their wisdom, does their presence make you feel safe? Do you feel seen? Do you feel heard? Do you feel valued? Do you feel safe? Do you feel not judged? And so it's introducing so many of these things into your body as pattern interruption. And at first it's uncomfortable because you feel like I'm not going to be able to get back on the bike. It's going to fall apart. And the thing is, we're just stepping off for a second. We're not the bike. We could get right back on the bike. But if we introduce that moment of stepping off of the bike and more and more moments of stepping off of that bike, there's more longevity and sustainability that's value-driven and goal-driven, and you're still going to achieve whatever it is that you want to be in a healthy relationship because the most important thing is a regulated nervous system. And when you prioritize that above all else, everything else is easier and more manageable because your resilience increases, your window of tolerance 
your inner physiology becomes more of a calmer way. And so you're doing things without this harried energy of having to arrive at this destination or be over here. What if you were to arrive there a little slower? Not very slow, but if you're taking that moment to just step off the bike for a second. Because if you're then looking at the big picture, a regulated nervous system, a more regulated, because no one is ever 24-7, a more regulated nervous system is the best gift that I can give myself and others around me and my work will thrive and be more productive when I have a more regulated nervous system. So if that's my priority, then I start to create moments of stepping off of the bike and introducing that in. And the working out, whatever it is that you like to do, I don't care if it's Tai Chi or yoga or lifting weights. Lifting weights is great, but usually anything that has a movement of your body is somatic, which means of the body, and you're moving energy around and out of your body, and you, it's helping you oscillate into a different nervous system state. And so we're introducing body movement to change inner physiology. We're introducing imagery and we're bringing in moments where we feel calm and safe in those moments of activation when you start to feel activated. But start practicing it before you get activated because then it can become this sort of habit of introducing and then you end up having a more regulated nervous system, which actually makes everything more enjoyable. And then you get to enjoy your success. And then you get to, and then, because if you're always on the bike, your social engagement system is not activated. And then you have all these successes and you can't share it with anybody. Whatever it, it is, let's say it's not finding a relationship and it's just becoming super successful in your career. And you're just on the bike going, no time to lose. I'm, I'm losing time. I need to get to that destination. But then you're just staying in sympathetic and you're eventually going to shut down because your body can only handle so much. So you're going to go into dorsal and the dorsal shutdown that is due to burnout is different than us going into dorsal. We need to shut down sometimes. We need to, it's a parasympathetic, it's also a parasympathetic state to chill out and shut down. And I want to take a nap and I want to sleep in this weekend and my body, listening to your body, your, but my body wants rest. If we keep overriding what the body wants and we don't listen through interoception, that's what leads to burnout. That's what leads to more nervous system dysregulation. And then you get more activated in the relationships. And then people are always like, how do I self-soothe? And one of the big things with your beautiful community that you created is a lot of attachment styles and the dynamics at play, right? And so it's that anxious avoidant dance is such a common thing that that we are coming across. And so here is an opportunity to learn how to self-soothe in those moments when a partner requires space to re-regulate. And when a partner requires, they can't re-regulate yet with another person and they need to go off on their own to re-regulate their nervous system. In that space, that's when you introduce the ventral. That's when you go for that walk in nature. That's when you take in that visual stimuli. And that's when you're chanting, humming, doing your yoga, that is, and if you consistently do that, because people will be like, I did it and it didn't, I was still thinking about it. I'm like, it's a process. You have to keep doing it. You have to set the intention that this is 
this is part of what I do. This is how I live now. I introduce moments of vagal into my nervous system. I step off of the bike knowing that I can always get back on the bike because I'm choosing to be on the bike because it's value-driven and goal-driven and I have every right to want those things, but I'm going to be really compassionate and loving to myself without judging because I'm going to give myself these moments and glimmers of stepping off of the bike. And if I do that, I'm setting up a more regulated nervous system. I'm setting up long-term sustainability. So it's like eye on the prize, right? We're not looking for this short term because then it's we're going to consistently be working with a irregulated inner physiology that is consistently more in sympathetic than in parasympathetic. And we want to be able to introduce ventral, which is parasympathetic, rest and digest, social engagement is part of that, heart open talked about porosity, which is intonation of voice. And when you're nervous, I remember one story. I This was years ago, and I wasn't really comfortable with this particular task I was given. And it was that I was asked to marry, get notarized, and marry my two best friends. They said that I had helped them with their relationship and that they feel like they wouldn't have gotten married if it wasn't for me. I was like, that's not me. Like, I was just a supportive, maybe I illuminated the path for you. So they asked me and I was the biggest honor ever. But now we are, I'm going to public speak in front of an intimate small group of people that I know. And the fear response kicked in and I was panicked. And, and then she has this whole idea of what she wants me to present in terms of marrying them and a story. I actually remember this, I was talked about quantum entanglement. And one of the, the things about that was that her, I, her vision was that they were, she talked about the Big Bang Theory and mm-hmm. talked about the idea that she, her soul recognized his soul the minute she saw him because they were part of the same star during that Big Bang Theory. And it was the stardust and they were part of that same star. That's why her soul recognized his soul when she saw him. And so I had to introduce this concept of quantum entanglement, but also try to be funny and like lighthearted and also be like by the power invested in me and the internet. I now pronounce they weren't saying they're the same particle. They were saying that they came from the same star and that's why they recognized each other. And there was a familiarity and a knowing when they saw each other. And that was a really big piece of what she wanted me to include in there. So now I'm like, I got all these things I'm tracking and I was super monotone. Like I was monotone because I was totally activated in my fear response because it was a close community of people that knew me really well. And I'm stepping into this different role. Meanwhile, I had run groups for years with clients and worked in substance abuse and ran a treatment center and all that. And I could do that effortlessly, but you put me there and literally the speech came out very monotone and I sounded like this and quantum entanglement is that. And I'm like, my social engagement system wasn't activated at that time. I didn't know half of what I know. Knowledge is so great. And so now I feel like if I was to do that now, I feel like I would execute it differently because I've worked on my nervous system. Not that, again, nobody's nervous system is you're human. You're going to get dysregulated. You're going to feel activated. You are going to not feel safe with certain people or situations. 
but we get to introduce, you're so powerful, right? You're so powerful that you can make yourself so scared and take a thought and really go with that thought and spin and go down this spiral, right? And you're just as powerful to be able to introduce moments and glimmers and experiences that you've had where you felt safe, where you felt connected, where you felt at ease, where you felt more neutral. And introducing that into your nervous system creates shifts in your phys inner physiology and you're working towards a more regulated nervous system. And it's the best thing, best gift you can give yourself, your partner, your family members. Me as a therapist, it's the best gift that I can give to a client that I'm working with, right? To give them these neural and be and co-regulate with them, right? Be with them, connect and attune with them and track them, right? I have to track not only what's going on in my own as a therapist, I have to be aware of what's going on in my own nervous system and then co-regulate in order for me to then track them and be connected and attuned with them so that I can help them to create safety. And what's amazing about all that is the body doesn't know whether it's happening then or happening now. Nope. And that's the power that the mind has, especially in any given moment that you can run yourself through this myriad of emotions and your thought process and the anxiety, the fear, the frustration, the irritation, the sadness, the loneliness, whatever you're going through, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And you literally build that up within yourself and you will get yourself so hyped up and anxious and none of it is actually happening in the moment. No. And then imagine getting to a task after you've experienced that internal experience based on something else. Imagine how exhausted you are yeah. to get to a task, to engage in that task. People are like, why do I procrastinate? Or why do I, because you become so exhausted by the time you get to the task because of the worry and the fear and the thinking about it beforehand, that by the time you get there, you've, your body feels like it's already done it and experienced it. And so it's about pattern interruption. It's all about pattern interruption. I have to start to introduce these new ways of feeling into my body. I need to learn to get off of the bike moments. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you're getting off of the bike. You're stepping off of the bike in order to get back on it more efficiently. And your past bleeds into your future because it's a repetitive, it's called repetition compulsion. And the idea that we are constantly subconsciously trying to heal what has happened in the past and romantic relationships are basically unfinished cycles. And it's an attempt to finish your childhood and resolve subconscious wounds that you never got. And it's this sort of vacillation into this repetition compulsion. Okay, now with this person, maybe I can finally get them to meet this need that never was met when I was a child. And then you keep repeating that cycle all the time. And you're basically casting people into this play of your life. You're casting them as characters into your play to basically play this script out to subconsciously heal a wound through repetition compulsion. And these people are not consensual. They don't know that they're being cast in this role. And sometimes we don't know we're doing it because it's so subconscious. But it's mm -hmm. real. what didn't I get when I was a child that I so desperately craved? What need was unmet 
when I was a child or in my early adolescent years where I didn't get. And then we keep picking the same similar partners because it feels familiar to our nervous system. We are always going to end up going towards something, even if it's unhealthy, unless we do pattern interruption Mm -hmm. to change the inner physiology. And then that's what, then the familiar no longer feels safe because it's what it also feels like for that person that's experiencing that is you end up with all these loose ends in your past and you carry that with you from relationship to relationship. And you think that one relationship was probably better than the other one because you're carrying this loose end, like unfinished business with this particular person. But now you've got five people that you dated, you have five loose ends. Yeah. And now you're trying to have a connection with this new person and this new person mm-hmm. might be different. They might be providing you with a different experience. They might have a more secure attachment style. They might be more calming in yes. the way that they show up. Yes. And you're going to recreate that in that experience with that person. And like you said, they're an unwilling participant in that. They don't know what's happening because they are working from a more secure base. Yes. And this is where we hear a lot of times we'll have the anxious attacher that says that person has to be avoidant. And it's this becomes a bit of the self-fulfilling prophecy where you had all these loose ends and you're bringing it in and projecting it onto the relationship. And now the secure person's, whoa, I didn't ask for this. I don't know what this is. I've never experienced this before. And it sets the alarm bells off for them and they begin to step away and they will ultimately reject that. Not yeah. always. No, but, but I, I think it's I think it's we always owe a debt to our body because yeah. your body holds on to all of the experiences. Well, the body keeps the score. The body right? keeps the score. And yeah. so we all have a debt to our body. So it's like at some point we're going to have to repay that debt. And the debt is the accumulation of experiences that have left an impact. And as we know, trauma is not what happened to you or what you witnessed. It's your interpretation of what happened. And it's your interpretation at that time and the impact that it left on you. So two similar people can go through the same exact trauma. And I see this a lot. Two siblings that are very close in age grow up in in the same family And one is like not affected by a particular dynamic or an event that has happened in the family system. Let's say it was a divorce or let's say the father was abusive or an alcoholic, whatever it may be. And these two siblings have had different experiences because it's how they interpreted what they witnessed that impacts their inner physiology and leaves an imprint And the body keeps the score of that. And so we owe that debt to our body. And if we keep accumulating debt and not pay it to our body, which is be with our body, which is honor our nervous system, which is work with the body and befriend the body and say, oh, you want to rest? Okay, I'm going to allow you to rest. I'm going to have compassion and love and no judgment for whatever is showing up inside of me because I have accumulated a lifetime of experiences that I may not have properly resolved yet, that I might not have had the rupture and repair that I needed in order to feel, have more internal system, inner physiological regulation enough to be able to create this calmer nervous system. So I keep going from one relationship to another with a dysregulated nervous system and not paying my body back by honoring it, by set, by recognizing, by feeling it, right? You have to feel it to heal it. 
And then the repetition compulsion is what I'm really trying to do subconsciously is to heal a wound that occurred and to resolve a need that never got met. And I'm casting these different people into these roles. And you're right, I'm bringing in my past experiences. So I'm never really resolving what happened because there's a repetition compulsion that's going on that's trying to make me final. It'll finally be with this person will be the final role and they will actually help me to heal that unresolved wound inside of me, that unmet need. They will make me feel seen. The problem and is we put all that pressure on that person and we don't know the anxious attacher will say it's that's the person that's doing this in the moment. They don't know that's what's happening in the relationship. No, you're, a lot. No, giving that to the other person and this other person just doesn't know what to, to do, with, do with it. Yeah. And the thing is basically I want to the anxious attachers work to do is to understand what is it like to have healthy intimacy because their subconscious fear is actually healthy intimacy. And there's this illusion that there, and I can relate with being a former anxious attacher that I give so much and I'm giving and I'm loving and they're just not receiving that. And what else do I need to do? But the thing is that if you're comfortable with the chasing on some level, as uncomfortable as it is, and if you're in the dance and you keep participating in the dance without setting a boundary or without saying what you're okay with, what you're not okay with, allowing for the space of that partner to have that, it. That's what's interesting is they'll recognize, I don't like this behavior. This doesn't make me feel good. In the long term, I don't feel loved. I don't feel seen, heard, loved, understood, and respected in this moment from this person. But then it's like a switch goes off. I must have to try harder. Because it's a subconscious repetition compulsion because it's if I win this, if I win this person's love, approval, if I finally get them to do what my dad never did or what my mom never did, and that comes into shadow work, that comes into recreating, let's say my father was dismissive and neglectful and there was a lot of lack, inconsistent lack of connection and attunement between me and my dad. And what I really wanted was consistency and to be seen. And so I'm trying to get that need met now by clinging or trying to be seen by a partner. And I'm and they're just like, they don't know what to do with all that, right? And I'm basically subconsciously trying to, I'm comfortable with, and it's familiar to me to have somebody who is dismissive and avoidant or checked out or not, because I think subconsciously that if I could be with them and they can be available, even though all the signs are showing that either they're emotionally unavailable or they require more space than I'm comfortable with. So the work is the inner work for both, right? So how does an anxious attacher self-soothe is take a moment to recognize their own patterns. I know they don't like it. Nobody likes it, but it's this automatic reaction that they end up having because it's so subconscious and that's the pattern interruption. Hold up. I'm going to start to behave differently, even though I have this like impulsive subconscious drive. And that's that pause I talk about between the external stimulus. I want to cling. I want to pull them in closer. I'm not feeling like I'm getting everything that I need from them. And then you have that moment, that pause where you can behave differently. It doesn't mean you're going to yet feel differently though. But if you keep behaving differently, 
in those moments between the external stimuli and what you're feeling inside. Here's an opportunity for me to be with the discomfort inside. And in that moment, instead of reaching out to my partner and trying to get assurance from that partner and making sure or rapid fire texting them or sending them paragraphs, instead of reacting to the distance, to the fear of abandonment, which is the conscious fear, what does it really mean to stop for a second and pause and be like, how can I introduce some calm into my nervous system instead of relying on outsourcing it to somebody else? Yeah. And this is where they'll often say, I have to do all the heavy lifting, emotional heavy lifting inside the context of the relationship. And, and yeah, and so here, there's two avenues with that. So basically, number one, Every situation is different and unique and nuanced. But if you find yourself in the anxious avoidant dance, which a lot of people do, and a lot of most of my couples end up as an anxious avoidant dance, and it's also known as the distancer and the pursuer in EFT. And basically, you want to shift the dynamic and you want it to feel differently and you want to be different in that relationship. You have to start to understand that you may think you're doing all the heavy lifting and you're doing all of the work and you may think that you're, again, this is different for everybody, but I, I challenge you to think about how emotionally available that you actually are. Because if the pursuing and the clinging stopped, would you actually be able to be with somebody who's totally available and can meet you eye to eye, soul to soul? Would you know how to do that? Would that feel safe to your nervous system? Or does this feel as uncomfortable as it is, as much as you don't want to engage in protest behaviors or engage in clinging and all this, there's a level of familiarity that you're used to. That's why you continue to stay in it. And to actually think about your subconscious fear is actually fear of healthy intimacy most of the time. Nothing is all of the time. Most of the time, that's why sometimes anxious attachers don't find secure attachments exciting. It, there's not a lot of those highs and lows, right? And so this dance provides intermittent reinforcement. And it's that same concept of being on a slot machine. Why do people sit for hours on a slot machine? They're waiting for that ding. And that's usually characterized by a lot of highs and lows. And those relationships become either co-addicted or more addicting and harder to get out of because of the intermittent reinforcement that occurs and the subconscious attempt at repetition compulsion and healing a wound inside. So there's a certain level of discomfort and familiarity. I know how to do this. As painful as it is, I've been here before and I can finally maybe get this person to see me or get to meet my need and be chosen by them. Right then I will feel healed is this subconscious attempt. But if you become that whole idea that the avoidance don't do the work, some avoidance do the work, some avoidance do. And it's our both partner, it has to be both partners have to be willing to participate in it. And so if you're in this dance, there is your own work, there is the other partner's work to recognize, right? And then to understand that if you find that you're, it's just, it's causing distress and discomfort for both parties. You open the lines of communication where you say, hey, this doesn't feel healthy for either of us. I don't want to cling to you and I don't want to rely on, and I'm feeling like there's distance because here's the thing. 
one day of distance, two days of distance, taking some space is different than somebody for two weeks not talking to somebody they're in a relationship with. At, at a certain point, it becomes not healthy for the relationship or for either party. And saying, hey, I recognize we're both getting activated in different ways and we're both responding in the ways that our nervous system knows how to respond. And I feel that the care that I'm extending to you and the love that I'm extending to you, I don't know if it's being held. I'll do, I'm do my own work, right? But I would like to be in a more safe place because you deserve that and I deserve that. And the safe place that I think we can work this out would be in couples therapy. Or you're doing your own individual work and I'm doing my own individual work, but there needs to be more open lines of communication in order to facilitate that. And you can do that when you are in a relationship and you can do that separately and in a relationship, but there has to be two willing participants. What's so interesting is I'll make these posts for the avoidant. And of course the anxious attacher is always commenting, Hey, how come you don't make any posts about the avoidant? I'm like, well, if you do, I make, there's tons of those. You got to mm -hmm. go search through my reels and actually listen to the videos. I know some of them are long. I get it. I hear you. And then I always tell them there's a podcast episodes and we dive into this as well. You and I have done a couple now, Yeah. but I made a post. It was a carousel this time about eight successful ways to connect with your avoidant. And there was such rejection from that because let's say, again, it goes back to, well, I have to do all the heavy lifting. That right. sounds like I have to walk on eggshells in that relationship. And it's mm -hmm. like, no, what it is recognizing that the other person that you're dealing with also it, has needs. They do. And you're two ends of the same stick, the anxious and the avoidant. And the avoidant might not have the same emotional capacity that you do for intimacy and closeness, but because yes. you haven't experienced anything different you naturally assume that other people feel exactly the way that you do. And they think that you, the way that you do and that you expect to receive love in the same way that you give love. And so it becomes very complicated and nuanced, but when you start diving into this and you understand more about the avoidant, then there's, you'll be able to step back and not demonize them as much as they do. Yes. Uh, it's just really unfair to the avoidant. And we got to show them a little bit of love because guess no. what? they're not narcissists. No, that's they're a common not. Phrase that gets made as well. No, so. there are narcissists. Listen, certain people exhibit narcissistic qualities. And yes. as we know, it's not always the avoidance. There's even anxious people ex exhibit narcissistic yeah. qualities and not everybody has NPD. It's about 0.6 to 6% of the population that has narcissistic personality disorder, but people can have narcissistic traits and Anxious attachers can have them, fearful avoidant attachers can have them, avoidance, even secure attachers can have some narcissistic traits. So it's not about demonizing an avoidance, it's about understanding that the anxious attacher has to take into consideration what the, not just what they need, what does the partner that I am with also need, even though it's different than what I might need. And it may feel like it's common sense for them to give that. It, What's common sense to one person is not common knowledge or sense to the other person because we're two different people and that's individuation. And so you have two different people that are coming in with their own inner biology, their own embedded trauma, their own fear stories, core beliefs, collective experiences, and you're trying to join in an interpersonal relationship. And if you stop for a second and be like, this needs to have reciprocity, there needs to be 
it can't just be everything that I need. I need you to respond to me at a certain time. I'm only okay with this amount of distance, blah, blah, blah. What do they need to feel safe? Because all of this comes down to safety. And that's what Polyvagal talks about is safety. Everybody is seeking safety. Avoidance want love. And a lot of the anxious attachments are like, why do they even bother getting in a relationship? They want love. They want connection. They want companionship. It's There's an automatic response inside of their body that they are not aware of that just clicks. It takes a second to click. Closeness is the trigger. So their work is to learn how to slowly titrate and tolerate closeness within a window to increase their window of tolerance for closeness because closeness often can be the trigger for them. And maybe the anxious attacher can take some a pause and it's different with every single person. Am I requiring too much closeness in order to feel safe? Am I requiring too much reassurance? It's not too much. It's more- When we're talking about closeness, I want people to understand we're not talking about bedroom intimacy. In no, this case. no. Intimacy is communication, yeah. level of contact throughout the day, amount of text messages, amount of time spent. Intimacy is also hand-holding. Intimacy is hugging and cuddling on the couch. Intimacy is listening to somebody and really hearing them and holding space for what they're going through. That's intimacy. And it's under that umbrella of co-regulation. It's all under that. And so with the avoidant, it, they're doing the best that they can with what they have. So it's helpful for the anxious attacher not to do the heavy lifting, but reframe it. Look at it like I'm learning another attachment style that's completely different than mine. I'm learning what they require for safety. Maybe what I require for safety is different than what they require for safety. That doesn't mean it's wrong or right or bad or good. It's just different. And then can you have gratitude for who the other person is? All these other amazing qualities that they potentially have that attracted you to them to begin with. Exactly. And then ask yourself, are you willing to navigate this with this person? Because they got a couple things that, that we need to work on. What are we going to co-create as a couple? Co-creation. And that's the most beautiful thing is if I communicate or anybody communicates with their partner instead of attacking them or blaming them or shaming them, but asking for what they might need, right? Responding rather than reacting and actually communicating you're going to get farther in the relationship and well, there's going to be a place of criticism. Your relationship is the minute that the criticism goes up, it's anyone's automatic reaction to become defensive Yeah. because nobody likes to feel criticized. And so when we ask a relationship that feels like it's not going well, both people's needs aren't being met in that dance. That's when you offer the, the criticism wasn't warranted either. So. No, it's more like I feel less connected to you when I don't hear from you for four days. Yeah. I feel less connected to you when I don't hear. See, I'm not blaming. I'm just saying I feel less connected to you. And I really love being connected to you. Yeah, so it's I statements. I, I really, I love being connected to you. Would you be willing to facilitate an, a date night or would you be willing to, like a middle path, right? We're co-creating. So it's not, it's always in a relationship. It's never one person's way or it's the middle path. And so with couples, when I do the co-regulating, I have each couple write, what is my ideal relationship vision look like with my partner? And then the other partner writes, what is my ideal relationship vision look like separately on your own? And then we come together 
and then they share it and then they go back and write our relationship vision. And what do you, let's say the anxious attacher goes, I would like to cuddle seven days a week in front of the TV at night embraced and the avoidant attacher says two days a week. What do you think will go into our relationship vision? Somewhere in the middle of that. So maybe you don't cuddle seven nights a week in front of the TV and you don't cuddle two nights a week, but you cuddle four times. Yeah, my my hands are already sweating. Yeah, I but like maybe it's four or three. Like it's the titration. It's the comfort level. And it's always, I always ask couples to ask, would you be willing to and offer three options? And that way there, it's not, you're not pigeonholed. And so would you be willing to text me good morning for the next week every morning? Or would you be willing to set it, surprise me with a date night this week? Or would you be willing to uh, do a state of the union with me? And a state of the union basically is a check-in. One thing you think is going good in the relationship, one thing you think that could use improvement in the relationship, and one thing you really appreciated about your partner in that particular week. And so it's that touchstone, right? You get to sit and have that like that touch point where you get to check in with your partner. One thing you think is going, and it's all about the relationship, not about you or the other person. One thing I think is going good in the relationship. One thing I think could use improvement in the relationship. And one thing I really appreciate about you this week. And each person takes turns doing it. Yeah, that gratitude is so important. Grat- I do appreciation exercises and an appreciation dialogue with people where I have couples sit across from each other and they share one thing I really appreciate about you is, and then the other partner mirrors it back. So what I hear you saying is that one thing you really appreciate about me is that I've been take out the garbage and really take care of the house. Did I get that? And they go, yes. And so our job in mirroring is the more attuned we are to our partner we don't add our own interpretation. We just mirror back what they said. We capture the essence of what they're saying back to them and they ask if it's right. And if it's not right, we ask if they can deliver the rest of that. Which part did I miss? And they go, the part that I said that I appreciate all of the things you do around the house, not just the garbage that you're taking out. And I notice that. So then you say, oh, so I hear that you appreciate all of the things that I do around the house for us. And the person goes, yeah, did I get that? Then you share another appreciation. Another thing I really appreciate about you is the fact that you're going to couples therapy, if that's the case, let's just say, that you're willing to work on this with me. And then the person mirrors back. So what I hear you saying is that you appreciate that I'm willing to go to couples therapy. Did I get that? And they're like, yeah. Okay. But But then you have to mean it. Right. And the thing is that I often with couples, I, I say slow. Let's go slow. The slower we go, the faster we get there. We don't want to introduce a million concepts in. We're looking, if we're if you're in a six-year relationship, we're trying to break patterns and habits. It's not going to happen overnight. There needs to be a slow titration. And we have to start introducing safety into the body because without safety, there can't be intimacy. So what do you say to the person that just comes back with, this is all too difficult, it's too much, this should be easier than it is? And the the thing I would say is that could very much very well feel true for that person, but the inevitable reality is that couples, I don't care who they are, go through essentially four stages. They go through the honeymoon stage, which lasts different for each person. 
meaning it can last from a couple of months up to three years with some couples. And at that point, that honeymoon stage, you're completely intoxicated with chemicals. You have oxytocin, vasopressin, dopamine, serotonin. That's where the statement rose-colored glasses come in. And at that point, your partner is charming and sweet, and even their idiosyncrasies don't really get on your nerves, and you're in this sort of excitement phase because you are actually intoxicated with chemicals. Yeah, and you're, you're, under, you're actually dating each other. You're going you're, on trips. You're doing all these things. It's exciting. You're building. You're falling. And you're under the, you're under the influence of a bunch of cocktails. At some point, the honeymoon stage will wear off no matter who you are with. I don't care who you're with. And you will enter into the second stage, which is the power struggle stage. And in this power struggle stage is where the cocktails have worn off and the one or more of the partners either want their partner to be exactly like they were in the beginning of the relationship, which is not sustainable because relationships ebb and flow, or they want them to be more like them because what happened is the cocktails wore off. I now can see you more clearly and recognize that you're a flawed human being that's both flawed and magnificent. But the stuff that you, I used to think was really cute because I'm not intoxicated any longer, I find a little annoying or it's getting on my nerves or it's not meeting a need. Would you also say that's a shift in your attachment style at that point? It it's, might be feeling more secure. I think two, a couple of things can happen. Remember, the avoidance attachment system gets activated later on than the usual, usually anxious attachers attachment system gets activated quicker than the avoidance. So in the beginning, the avoidance shows up in a way where they, their attachment system hasn't gotten activated yet. So they're able to travel with you, be with you, spend time with you. And during these moments of connection and intimacy, the anxious attachers attachment system is activated and they're connected and feel close. And the avoidant is engaging and doing all these things that is feels like they're available, they are going on vacations, they're connecting, they're having quality time spent together. The yeah, sex are making themselves available. They're making themselves available, things. but their attachment system hasn't gotten activated yet. And so their attachment system takes longer for an avoidant. It takes longer for an avoidant to feel closer to somebody is really what it means. So even though you're doing all these close things and you're which doing rooted all in trust, which is rooted in trust, it takes a while for them. And then the, when that gets activated, so that plays a part in the power struggle stage. Absolutely. Now, the, if the avoidant attachment system gets activated, now they might feel engulfed. Now closeness feels like a trigger as opposed to before. It didn't feel the same way. It's not something that the avoidant wants. It's something that happens into an internal cue that just switches on because their attachment system got activated. Just like the anxious attachment system gets activated and they become hypervigilant and preoccupied. They don't want that either. They want to, so power struggle stage is not necessarily the secure stage yet. It's seeing your partner and seeing them as this person that also has, is a little flawed, just like everybody's flawed. Flawed and magnificent, I call everybody. Perfectly imperfect. But you start to see them for them being an actual person, and you're not intoxicated by chemicals at this point. And so you see that clearly. And so that stage is really important because that's where a lot of ruptures happen. And so to have proper rupture and resolve and rupture and repair in those stages is what sets you up 
And in order to work with the power struggle stage, you need to enter stage three is what you're talking about, the co-creation. It's about recommitting to the relationship to basically be intentional moving forward about co-creating an ideal relationship of your dreams because the honeymoon stage is worn off and you're in the power struggle stage. So the people that I find that get able to intercept in that stage and become more intentional, then move into the fourth stage, which is the secure love. Where you're more comfortable and if there's more safety in the relationship, it might not be the ups and downs and super exciting and that's not sustainable anyways. And but from a it's co- coaching perspective. I always tell people you got to use the language of a shared mission and vision. Where are you going? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? And what's your growth? Uh, what's the expected growth over the next one year, three years, five years, and, and 10 that, years? Abs- that's what I say. I say the slower we go, the faster we get there. But what is the yeah. vision? What is the shared mission and vision and co creation of what you would like this to look like in six months, both individually and as a couple? I want my partner to support me in my business venture and feel like a team with them. I, I want to feel safe in this relationship. Okay, so that's what we work towards then. It's not going to snap our fingers and happen, but we have to have two willing participants that are understanding that they both play a part in this. And the anxious attached individual wants romance, wants connection, might get triggered by too much closeness, but if it's communicated properly and their space is honored, and they don't feel like their autonomy is being infringed on, they're going to feel safer. So it's not really heavy lifting. It's maybe I, if I'm the anxious attacher, can use this as an opportunity to cultivate that he's not my, he or she is not my world, if I'm the anxious attacher, that I can have this as an asset and I'm wired for connection so I can depend on my partner relationally in an interdependent way But maybe this is an opportunity not only for me to self-soothe, but for me to recognize what else do I have going on in my life that gives me joy and peace and calm? Are there any repressed dreams that I have that I'm pushing to the back burner because because I become preoccupied and all I want to do is be with my partner? Because if you are not doing things that bring you joy, if you don't have your own hobbies and interests... If you're not bringing in moments of ventral into your own system and you're not self-soothing and you don't have your own friends or whatever it is that gives you joy, singing, walking in the park, going for long car rides, your yoga, you're going to automatically project all of your happiness and, and try to get all of your needs met because that's the one thing that feels good in your life. That's a sign that clearly there's not enough things that feel good in your life, that this feels so good that you're going to project everything onto this. And you're doing this all subconsciously because it's the thing that feels the best in your life. Maybe you're not, on, you're not happy in your job and that is making you unhappy. You don't have enough hobbies or you're not doing enough things that bring you joy and cultivate safety. You don't have enough friends to have co-regulation with. Then you end up inadvertently projecting all of your dreams, desires, because that's the thing that's making you the happiest in your world. So it's a moment to pause and say, I don't have enough things that provide value in my life. I've repressed dreams or desires. I'm actually not happy in my job. Maybe I need to look to make a shift because we want to have some level of happiness in what we're doing because work is work. It's going to get stressful no matter what you do, but some level of happiness, some level of purpose and passion, some things that bring us joy 
and enough other co-regulators in our life that we can depend on and other hobbies and this rich internal world that's this is interdependence right and this right. is not an this is not enough connection and a lot of people go from this to this to this or this is like too much this is codependency which is not always bad but this is enmeshment so let's not even say codependency enmeshment because people who have codependent traits are actually have wonderful qualities it's just there's certain elements that are maladaptive that you need to work on but again you're right a shared mission talking about what's the long-term goal what are we working towards safety safety for you and safety for the other partner it's not just about you feeling safe it's also about the other partner feeling safe i think what would help anxious attachers to feel like maybe that if the partner is a willing participant in being willing to do some of their own work and honoring that their work may look different than your work and they may require a little bit of more space to do their work and you can use that opportunity to build your world a little bit more. Maybe it's an opportunity to re recognize what other things do I have in my life that are giving me joy, calm, uh, playfulness, social engagement, hobbies. What are those things? Do I have them or don't I? Because if you don't, it will get projected onto the partner. Yeah. And as you're doing that, you begin to, you become more secure within yourself. Because what you're seeking in others is a piece of yourself that you believe is missing somehow that, you know, you're not worthy for love. And so I'm going to I got to go after this thing and chase this other person so that I can fill this void that's inside of me. But when you start filling that with the other things and you start working on yourself physically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually, and you're filling each one of those cups daily. Now, all of a sudden, you discover that you have this really just large amount of inner strength. And then your choices for the types of relationships that you might have in the future, they might change. Yeah, that's a, that's a phenomenal point because the thing is that when you shift your inner neurobiology through your inner biology and your inner physiology and you create more nervous system regulation through having more joyful, calm experiences and co-regulation then you require different things in a relationship because you're meeting some of those needs yourself and you're right. building a connection with yourself and you are standing in self as opposed to outsourcing it. You're not outsourcing it. So you're like, I feel good, but here's the thing that typically happens with anxious attachers is that hyper-focused, hyper-arousal, preoccupation, where the object of their affection becomes so, feels so much better than everything else that they're doing. They don't feel, they rather be with their partner than their friends. They rather be with their partner than working out. They rather be with their partner than doing something else because they are, they feel the safest or they're basically, they're, their system has gotten activated. And in order to self soothe, they're utilizing their partner to self soothe. But Here's my advice. If you keep cultivating these other things, they will become joyful and blissful for you. At first, you'll feel like you're going through the motions and that you are just doing it. But I promise you, if you keep and then doing that discomfort it, discomfort of being with yourself is like, oh, I don't like this. And then you can really recognize, oh, this is what I was running away from. I was looking for them to fix that part in me. I was looking for them to provide me the love that I wasn't giving myself. To have this 
internal experiential experience of actually giving yourself love is a somatic modality that I utilize and it's IFS. And again, it's an allowing, not a doing. And what ends up happening is that if a client comes into session and they want to learn more about how to regulate their nervous system and how to feel less activated, it's basically learning how to work with your own body and learning how to get comfortable with the uncomfortable and allowing me to hold it with them and slowly feel safer in their own body so that an understanding what is it that you're trying to get? What need are you trying to get met that you're not meeting yourself? Because we're wired for connection. So that's understandable. Of course, you're going to want a romantic partner in love. and But if it's not in an interdependent fashion, then you're outsourcing. And so it's like, I have had this experience with clients where it's this Focus mindfulness internal journey. That's what brain spotting and IFS is. And you work with these different parts of yourself and this experience of your core self, which is your higher self connected to your heart, whatever you want to call it, is this inherently healthy part of yourself that has reservoirs of wisdom and healing that everybody has. It's just about getting in touch with that core self. All these other parts block it. And so when we get to ask if those parts would just step back for a second, we're not asking them to go anywhere because they've been playing this role for a very long time, but we want to really be in touch with core self. And the more access we have with the core of us, which is the true being of us, which yeah. is, it's your, it's really being authentic and yeah. connected to what would I be without fear? What would I be if this anxious part stepped back? I'd be more playful. I'd be more spontaneous. I'd be more easygoing. I wouldn't maybe obsess as much. I would feel safer in my own body. And so the goal is to get you there, but we want to have this sort of inner experience. And I had it. I did it with my own therapist. And it's profound. And it's not, it's an unfolding and it's an allowing, not a doing. You don't go into the session and be like, I want to have this internal experience of learning how to give this to myself. It's like you begin the journey and it happens when it happens because None of that will be allowed unless you're working with a therapist and your body feels safe. And that takes time to build safety and rapport with a therapist. And I recommend that if you don't feel safe with your therapist, that you try to find a different therapist because without enough safety in the therapeutic relationship, the stuff won't come out. It won't feel safe enough. It'll be a major resistance. Your body won't allow it. It won't allow the unfolding of it. But once you create that safety with a coach or a therapist, or a friend to co-regulate with, you have an opportunity at that moment to learn how to go into self and look at this wounded part. We all have a wounded part. We're carrying a wounded part. And really send that part love and compassion and ask that part, what do you need? What have you not gotten? What do you need? And I remember my experience in there and it was like, it was really weird. If you actually allow it, your images come up, images, sensations, feelings come up that I didn't do because I'm very left brain. And that means I'm very scientific, pragmatic, protocol oriented. I'm, I do a lot of somatic modalities because I know healing is a right brain endeavor, truly, and safety is feeling. But to experience it is basically 
to ask that part, to be this benevolent observer of that part, right? To recognize if I can externalize that part from my core self and just look at it as a benevolent observer, wow, you've been really wounded. Somebody's using a chainsaw. I'm not sure what that is. Sorry for that interruption. Basically looking at that part that you're carrying, all the wounding, and say, what does it need? And my part said courage. And all of a sudden, my core self said courage. Oh, oh no, this part said courage. And it said something, I've courage. And so it was like many, oh, confidence many years ago. And so I was like, and I had the, I asked the part, would you like help with that, with receiving courage and confidence? And so there was this actual internal experiential experience of me giving that wounded part courage and confidence and courage and confidence. And then this image came up of Wizard of Oz. It was the oddest thing. And I was like, what did the scarecrow want? Did he want a brain or a heart? The Tin Man wanted something. I don't know. But that Wizard of Oz, and I'm like, he, one of them wanted courage. And I am like, I understand now why Wizard of Oz had a different meaning for me now. And these things just came up spontaneously. And that's what happens when you use somatic modalities like IFS or brain spotting. They allow you to have an internal experience where you get to give yourself all of that. And you can't do that without feeling it. We can use external sources, but we still have to internalize the external sources. So I think that's the best way to do your own work what, if you're an anxious attacher and not feel like you're doing all the heavy lifting, but you're the better for it if you're working on yourself. You have nothing to lose or, or gain, and you get to decide if you want to stay in that relationship, if that partner is willing to do the work, and if they're willing to go to couples therapy, or you have a decision if you might want to not, not be in that relationship, you have decisions to make. But it's never about blaming or shaming or mm -hmm. the being defensive. It's about how can I create a more regulated nervous system and how can I stop outsourcing and figure out what healthy intimacy looks like and how to be with somebody in a healthy, intimate way. Yeah, and I would encourage people to refrain from demonizing the avoidant and just recognize that there are behaviors that you don't enjoy in the context of a relationship and to recognize how these things make you feel and how you're experiencing your life and the way that you want to live your life and be in relationship with another person and just recognize that, you know what, they do have a limited emotional capacity but it's something that they can work through. And if you have two willing partners that are willing to do yes. the work and put in the effort, now it sounds like a lot of work, right? right? But they can work through it. They do you just... care enough about this person to want to go through the work with them? Or do you just want to be given what it is that you're asking for so that you can feel calm and connected again? Yeah. And or that's a just recognizing they're human. And yeah. And it's a decision that you get to make. And just like the anxious attachers can't help some of their automatic responses, like their reactivity and their clinging, the avoidant also is not choosing to pull away to re-regulate like that. That's all they know. Right. That everybody in this dynamic, anxious and avoidant, is just trying to feel safe. And the ways in which they go about it are just different. And that's all that it is. And it's it may feel cruel, the distance, or it may feel... but. They're just trying to, they're also getting activated in the context of the relationship. And they're just trying to figure out their own internal world and how to re-regulate. And so two willing participants, patience, 
being able to work through it and responding, not reacting and dialogue and communication. And, and a wonderful question to ask yourself, each of you is what are my goals, values, and standards for a relationship with me? And within that, you'll find some of your boundaries, your relationship boundaries. And when you learn to acknowledge and honor those boundaries in the context of that relationship, you begin to realize how powerful you actually are and how much of the cards you hold within the relationship. So when somebody bumps up against your stuff, you're like, yeah, you know what? I already said this once. This does not work for me. And you'll allow yourself potentially to move on from it or at a minimum communicate about it. Hey, I don't like when you do X, Y, and Z. And you I just see, I, 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 right. I and feel. I feel. Right. Yeah, I feel. And, and then if the boundary is not honored over and over again, right. then so there's an internal boundary, which is the contract that I have with myself. And one of my internal boundaries is if I feel disrespected by somebody, like I feel, right? In terms of if somebody raises their voice at me or they curse at me, or they react to me in a way, I can handle people being, I'm aware that people have subconscious reactivity. I'm aware that people, but I think if I feel blatantly disrespected or cursed at, or somebody's having a reaction, hey, would you be willing to take a look at that? Because I don't really feel like my behavior warranted that type of reaction from you. And it feels a little bit inappropriate to the context for me. And I feel disrespected. And so for me, I do better if somebody is respectful of me. And what I consider respectful is when somebody speaks to me without cursing at me and communicates with me, if they're feeling abandoned or left out or let down by me, whatever that may be that is causing this reactivity, I'm going to respond better to you. But if I feel disrespected and I'm giving you the opportunity to tell you that I feel disrespected and you don't do anything about it, my external boundary is that you lose access to me. Yes. And that's that, and that's standing in self because I'm honoring the fact that I communicated it with you. I let you know. And I am asking no cursing and really being conscious of your reactivity. And I'm also really understanding as to I understand that you're going through whatever you're going through and that it's a reaction that's coming up. And I can handle that as well. I just... If I feel disrespected, I need communication. If you tell I'm feeling really abandoned in this moment, or I feel really I'm dysregulated right now and I'm taking it out on you. I, okay, all right, I got you. It's just the blatant, if I feel that's one of my boundaries, everybody's is different. If I feel like that happens, then, and I come, I'm willing to, I communicate it. I give space and time to allow that person to because I recognize that it, they have to work on shifting it. I'm honoring of that. And if I find that it repeatedly happens, my external boundary, which is really just an execution of the contract that I have with myself, that I don't tolerate disrespect in close interpersonal relationships or in any relationship, then they lose access to me. I love it. I just stick to, I just, that, and that's standing in self and I'm not going to budge. I'm understanding. I'm open. I can understand all different points of view, but that's a boundary for me. And yeah. I stand for, I stand firm in that. And the, everybody's allowed to have that. The biggest issue is that acknowledgement that, yeah, you know what? You lose access to me because I'm not going to tolerate poor relationship behaviors. And that sounds a little firm, 
but you have to be firm in your boundaries for what you want from that relationship from yes. what you, and how you expect to be treated because no one else is going to advocate for you. So you have to do that. Exactly. And it's, I spent a lot of years, you know, I've been in therapy myself and I'm very open about it because I feel like every good therapist should have a therapist for probably 15 15 years on and off with some of the most brilliant mentors and teachers. And I'm always learning. And I feel that doing my own work helps. I always want to be a couple of steps ahead of my own wounds so that I can be of maximum service and benefit to somebody. And that doesn't mean that you are always going to be these, all these people that you see that are mentors and people on social media that are really intelligent and have a lot of knowledge and that are offering it. They also get dysregulated. They also falter. They also can be reactive. You mean everybody's got stuff? Everybody, everybody. And so what on social media, I just like is people don't every, this is called being a human and humans have to deal with three, three important things. And that is we're all going to have to deal with pain. Nobody comes out unscathed. Suffering's optional, right? It is. It, and that's that work, that internal, in, inner physiology, creating a more regulated nervous system. Pain, uncertainty, because it's uncertain for everybody. And that's the law of impermanence, right? Everything ebbs and flows and changes and shifts. And people who are the happiest and the most peaceful people, not all, nobody is peaceful all the time, are people who accept that there is, even people who are together 10 years. Your relationship probably looks different in year one than it did at year six and at year 10. And that's not wrong or bad or good. It's just different. And friendships change and jobs change. That's the law of imper Im impermanence, which is the uncertainty principle that is fair because it's unfair for everybody because we all have to deal with the uncertainty principle and always doing the work. And that's the idea. If you don't put gas in your car, what's going to happen? It's going to break down. If you don't change the oil on your car, your body is the same thing. Your body is this finely tuned wonderful machine on some level that is is mind and body connection and it ha is has this amazing innate ability to heal itself if you allow it the time and the space and the proper tools that it actually wants these emotions to move past through your body it wants to heal them it wants to let go of them and so always doing the work is not this daunting task because we have to reframe it. Always doing the work is, is if I don't clean my house or maintain my household, it's going to be unmanageable. I'm not going to be able to do it. So cleaning the house is hard, but leaving it dirty is much harder. Working out is hard, but not working out is much harder. And it's that with everything, right? So always doing the work is basically taking care of my body, taking care of my mind, making sure that I'm recognizing my patterns, recognizing how can I create a more regulated nervous system? How do I continue to improve and learn? And that's always doing the work. But if we reframe it like, this is just a beautiful routine or a beautiful way of living my life that I get to incorporate, then I won't be this huge undertaking. And there's no destination to arrive at. I, and this is as corny as it sounds, the journey is the destination. As long as you are walking in the path of healing, you are doing the work. And it's through doing the work that you begin to recognize that you become anti-fragile. You hit this place that 
no matter what happens, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay no matter what. And, you, and of course you're going you're gonna to be like, oh, that was disappointing. I wish that had worked out in a different way. But I'm still okay. So pain, I'm going to still experience pain. But my refractory period is going to be quicker, which means yeah. I'm going to be able to go from dysregulation to regulation much quicker. And I'm going to be able to be like, oh, that was really upsetting and disappointing. I really wish that would have happened for me or that this wouldn't have, I can't believe this ended or I didn't get that job opportunity, but I'm still okay because I'm intact with me. And I know that sometimes rejection is redirection. It didn't happen. And that's okay because that must not have been meant for me, but there's something else around the corner. And I'm so excited to see what it is because if this didn't work out for me, and I'm going to leave you with this image that I love. It's this almost like God-like, whatever, universal figure. And this little kid is grasping onto this teddy bear. And it's this teddy bear that this, you could tell this little kid is just loves this teddy bear so much. And the God, whatever, universal spiritual figure is saying, give it to me. And the t- it's clinging tighter to the, no, I want it. Why are you taking it away from me? I love this. And behind it, the child doesn't see, is a bigger, better, brand new teddy bear. But the child is so afraid and so attached to that that it can't see what's not behind it. And if it would just give that over, then this would be able to be offered to the child. And that's oftentimes what we experience, right? We're so afraid of the uncertainty principle. Maybe this is the best that I'm going to get. I should hold on to it. Or I should try to force this because we're afraid of that. But if we allow that space for something better to come along and be excited, I'm so excited about what the potentiality of my life is going to look like because your life can change in a moment, in an instant. You can turn around, I don't know, on the line in the grocery store and say hi to somebody and all of a sudden it's a new friend or look at how we became close. We don't know how life is going to – and looking at it as more exciting that the things that are meant for me are always going to be drawn to me. My tribe is going to be drawn to me and I'm going to have the experiences that I need to have for the evolution of my consciousness to eventually land me where I need to be with the right people. Yeah. So stop stopping yourself from experiencing your own potential. Stop that. Yeah. Stop that. And allow. Yeah. No, I agree. Allow and surrender to the flow of the universe and let yourself get into more of a flow state. And that is the way you do that is through a lot of those exercises and that we talked about the imagery, bringing that in inviting ventral into your nervous system. The more you work towards a more regulated nervous system, the safer your body feels. The safer that your body feels, the more risks that you take. The more risks that you take, the more rewards that come. And so everything is connected to a more regulated nervous system. And everything else becomes a byproduct of it. Then you have more trust because you've created trust and a felt sense of implicit safety in your own body that you trust, you're starting to trust more. You trust that what is supposed to happen for you is going to happen for you. You start to, because, but if there's lack of safety in your body, you're running on fear. That's your fuel. You're primed for fear and you're running on fear. So that's why really working with your nervous system and befriending it and not judging it and really learning how to oscillate more into ventral and recognizing that you are always in blended states. That is what is going to create 
you to be, feel safer in your own body. And when you feel safer in your own body, again, you're more socially engaged, which you create more opportunity because you're socially engaged and you are more open and you are more trusting because you feel safe in your own body. We have to create a felt sense of implicit safety in our body. So would you say you just became a manifesting generator? You And that's really what it is. Yeah. is that's what manifesting is. Manifesting is matching what you want with a feeling. So oftentimes people are like, they want something and they're like, I've been manifesting, I've been manifesting it. But if it doesn't match what you're feeling on the inside, it won't, it's called, that's what's called emotional bypassing and quantum leaping and spiritual bypassing. You're saying all these positive, wonderful affirmations and you have all these really great things you want to manifest, but the frequency is not matching because then here we come back to regulating your nervous system yeah. so that it feels safe enough for you to be able to accept that of which you want so it doesn't feel like a threat to your nervous system. And then you have to feel that, right? And that's what creates real manifesting is the embodiment of that to actually embody something. And you're learning how to do that by bringing in these experiences sensationally into your body through that imagery. It's teaching you how to learn how to feel differently. If I can do it with that, now I could apply it to what does it feel like to get that? Because everything that we think that we want is because we think it's gonna give us something. Emotional security, financial security, happiness, peace. What if I could be like that now, peaceful now, and be happier now, happier, right? I'm probably going to pull the goalposts closer towards me. If I can access those internal physiological states, I'll bring the goalposts closer to me. And I understand, and I'm very sensitive to lack of resources and lack of all those things, but... There's a lot of stuff that's available to us that's free, right? Walking out in nature is a co-regulation. Calling up a friend or there's free therapeutic services that people can engage in their states where there's free counseling. Co-regulating with somebody like that and adopting a pet that's free. Saving an animal from a rescue dog, whatever works for them. But the thing is just honoring that. All of this is about safety in the body, and all of that is is creating a more regulated nervous system, and it's and that's a lot of what polyvagal theory talks about. That's a lot of co-regulation, interoception, and really just bringing in anchors, inner anchors, to create these internalized experiences, so that your feelings match what you want. And then the only question is, how good can you handle it? And the thing is that if your body recognizes it as a threat on some level, because it doesn't re resonate with your internal narrative, right? That's when you can't handle it. So you often see lottery winners winning massive amounts of money, but it doesn't resonate with the fact because they don't have that abundance mindset or they don't they're like, oh my God, I can't believe I won this. I don't feel like I, I should even, and then they squander it away. And they're not very smart with it because there's a lack of safety that happened on an internal level that didn't resonate. It felt like a, it felt like dangerous to their nervous system. It felt like a lack of safety to their mental and physical health. And so then it was like burning a hole in their pocket. Yeah. 
I gave you something, you don't know what to do with it, so you drop it. Because you don't, because it feels like a threat to your nervous system. Or you system. hand it off. Or you yeah. hand it off because it doesn't feel like you can hold it because your nervous system, it's safety again. And the more well, I've, implicit- I've never had it. I, I don't, I've never experienced this. So how can I know what to do with this thing? What does good feel like? What does safe feel like? What does fulfillment feel like? You felt those things before. What does connection feel like? those moments and those glimmers. So we bring those in more frequently so that we can now resonate with more of those type of emotions. Even if it's a, even if it's a new experience, Did something drop over there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's funny. So then if you keep bringing in these calm ventral experiences, then you'll match the frequency of having that. Even if you haven't experienced that yet, because you're allowing your body to experience more and more ventral. So even if the experience is new, calm will feel familiar to your nervous system now. And fulfillment will feel familiar to your nervous system. Connection, remember moments, glimmers, because we've been introducing it in over and over again. And then when you get to that thing of which you're manifesting, your body won't necessarily look at it as such a physical or mental threat. And it will be more embodied in that state, even if it's a new experience. Well, Essen, I think that's a really great place to wrap up. Tell people where to find you and how they can work with you. So eternalwellnesscounseling.com is my website. On there, I offer coaching. You can email submission to me. My social media handle, I think it's Essen Pinarly underscore LCSW. I can ask, answer any questions over there, any inquiries that anybody may have on there. And uh, my other website's being built, so I won't even bother plugging that him. Like, so right now, the coaching and the psychotherapy is combined on eternalwellnesscounseling.com and on my Instagram handle, SNPinarly underscore LCSW. Essen, I can't thank you enough for today. This is our conversations. They always go deep. They always go long but it's always filled with so much information that is tangible. It's useful. You can implement these things now. You can go back and listen to this episode and have some things that you can start working on almost immediately. Absolutely. And that's what we want some practical application steps as we allow the unfolding and we allow all that, like we get to juice, have practical application steps that we can begin to do and not look at it at such a big undertaking because it's all about perception and how we look at it. But again, I, you, you and I always have organic, natural conversations that lead where they're supposed mm -hmm. to lead. And for those of you who are still here, I am going to plug the 21-day self-love challenge that Essen was also a part of. We ended up with 22 speakers in 22 days, a lot of value there. And from now until November 28th, you get a Black Friday sale. It is $100 off. So I highly encourage you to sign up. It's self-paced. You get access to over 30 hours of content as well as all the future 21-day self-love challenges. I, I just want to make a comment on that. I love being a part of that. This is the second one, I think, Jason, that you've done. And mm -hmm. it really is if you were to think about having one-on-one -on -one sessions with all these brilliant speakers that he's collaborated with, that he's brought on the value, I can't even believe you're offering it for $97, but 
the limited quantity on that but. yeah i just think there's authors and you know, breathing specialists and somatic practices and just a plethora and a wealth of information on there with really brilliant speakers and i think that you're getting so much content in there at a self-paced thing that would probably cost you honestly thousands of dollars to do so i encourage everybody to do it like i am so honored to always be a part of it anytime you do something like that, because I think is enormous value in that an enormous amount of good content to help people in their healing journey. So. Absolutely. And when you look at the testimonials that get left behind, it always surprises me because this is something that I never intended on doing. I had a whole career before this. And so now that I've moved into this direction, it always amazes me that you can create something from nothing. And it's taking all your knowledge and experiences and your network becoming part of your net worth and building of these friendships and putting these things into Kajabi where it's easily accessible and you get to interact with people that you normally wouldn't be able to interact with. And then to be inside of a closed group where everyone is so deeply supportive of one another and oh. they continue on, they're still sharing inside of the group. No, I always say this to you, your community is beautiful. And I'm yeah. saying this to the, your whole community. The community is absolutely beautiful and self-reflective and funny. A lot of funny people in your community. You're funny. So I think you, you track that. And just a very warm, loving, supportive community that are seekers, that are like wanting to learn. And I, even with the polyvagal theory, like what I recognize more and more as I learn more is that it's a movement. And what I feel like in this whole thing is like a movement towards more self-reflection and self-awareness and a collective healing. And I feel like this container of the 21 day, day self-love challenge that you just organically came up with and came up with on your own and created and all these people that are a part of it. And then this private closed community where people get to share their experiences is just a beautiful sacred space that is, I think, invaluable to a lot of people. And I, I encourage if you haven't had access to it or you haven't done it, you really should check it out because I, I go into it on my own and I'm just like reading the comments and I'm like, this is beautiful. Yeah. I don't so think people recognize of... that it exists because it's a piece of my story. It's a piece of what I had to do to get to where I am now. And of course, we're always in a state of becoming. We're always in this always, place, place always. of evolving and learning and growing and expanding. And it's such a wonderful place to be because you do end up becoming more secure within yourself. And within that, you start to Share. You share and you teach others and it comes from this place of authenticity and you do it for the right reasons. And then you connect with people who want to do the exact same thing and it just continues to evolve and, and become larger. So yeah. I, I can't thank you enough for being a part of it and being a big supporter of the channel. Yeah, so. absolutely. Essen, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You as well. Bye, everybody. Thank you for joining. And if you watch later on, thank you for watching later on. <laughs> Bye. Have a great Bye. day.